Hello and welcome to Panam, the podcast that gets out its tape measure and sizes up Paris's past. Today, come with me as we discover how one of the greatest art thefts of history and the solving, or rather lack of solving of it, would force the man who even Sherlock Holmes admired to rethink his methods. I've come today to the police museum in the 5th arrondissement. Within, you can see all sorts of documents about serial killers, information about famous crimes and even a guillotine. But you are also able to see the incredible equipment used by Alphonse Bertillon, which revolutionised criminal investigation in France and indeed the world. Bertillon came from a gifted and forward-thinking family. His mother started a school in 1862 for the instruction of young women and his father, Dr Bertillon, pioneered through the Anthropological Society to do away with the priesthood, militarism, the cult of authority and the subjugation of women. Sadly, Alphonse did not do so well. He was kicked out of school at six, apparently he was beastly to his tutor and was played by ticks and migraines throughout his life. He's been described as sarcastic and generally unpleasant and incredibly unmusical. Seemingly unemployable, his father was able to wrangle him a job with the police, and although it didn't seem likely he would follow in his parents' great footsteps to achieve much, he proved them all wrong. Through his work, he transformed the way criminals were documented and caught, not only in France, but throughout the world, and his legacy lives on to this very day. In 1832, the practice, which had been widely used, of branding criminals was outlawed. Now because of this, it became near impossible to tell if someone had been arrested before and had a criminal record. Forging documents was relatively easy, and criminals often gave false names, and so it came down to a memory game. A police officer would need to remember and recognise someone if to see if they had a prior record. Photography was a relatively new art, and although it was used, it was not standardised. Bertillon saw the need for a system that was coherent and clear, and so was born the mugshot, the same that we use today. A photo, well lit of the person, one from the front and one from the side, which he was able to then attach to their file. But still, Bertillon realised people could change the way they look. They could grow a moustache, cut their hair. So he came up with an ingenious system to foil any would-be criminals trying to hide their identity. With his knowledge of statistics, he went about creating a system for classifying the criminals of 19th century France. Inspired by the work of Lambert Ulf Adolphe Jacques often called the father of modern statistics, who claim that no two human beings in the world have the exact same physical dimensions. So Bertillon selected body parts to measure, those that he thought would best stand the test of time and not change with age, and created what he called anthropometry, but was given the name Bertillonage. He would measure the body, the height, the width of the outstretched arms and the sitting height, the head, the length, the breadth, and the width from cheekbone to cheekbone. Also, the right ear. Limbs, he would measure the length of the left foot, the left middle finger, and the left little finger, and the left arm from elbow to the tip of the middle finger. Bertillon preferred the left, reasoning that since most people were right-handed, these measurements would change the least from use. 
However, despite this rather long list and what must have been a very time-consuming amount of measuring, Bertillon calculated that there was about a 300 million to one chance that two people might share all of the 11 same statistics. So, stickler that he was, he added three more points which needed to be taken into consideration. Hair colour, eye colour and pigment of the skin. Years of hard, meticulous work paid off. In 1883, the new chief of police gave Bertillon three months to prove his system worked or bin it forever. Up until now, they'd been very suspicious and didn't think it was really possible to use effectively in the police. It was looking bleak, but like all good stories, he got a break in the form of the criminal Monsieur Dupont, or Monsieur Martin, as he was calling himself. He had previously been in custody for the dastardly deed of stealing empty bottles. Bertillon was able to prove that Dupont and Martin were one and the same. Things took off from there, and he was soon identifying three repeat offenders a week. By 1884, he had identified 241 and 424 by the next year. His method became widespread, and his reputation increased, especially when he was able to solve high-profile cases. He won the Legion of Honour for his role in the capture of Ravachol, a notorious anarchist bomber, managing to identify him and stop further bomb attacks, for which everyone was very grateful. This was a time where detectives and forensic science was beginning to take off and Bertillon's system and approach was considered very modern and exciting. He introduced his scientific methods to other areas of crime, recording the crime scene with photography, taking plaster casts of footprints or analysing bodies for traces that might have been left behind like insects or soil that might yield valuable clues. He even reached the dizzying heights of being compared in brilliance by Sir Conan Doyle to fictitious super-sleuth Sherlock Holmes in The Hound of the Baskervilles. Let's hear a little quote. Recognising as I do that you are the second highest expert in Europe, indeed, sir, may I inquire who has the honour to be the first? asked Holmes. To the man of precise scientific mind, the work of Monsieur Bertillon must always appeal strongly. Then had you better not consult him? I said, sir, to the precisely scientific mind, but as a practical man of affairs, it's acknowledged that you stand alone. I trust, sir, that I haven't inadvertently just a little, said Holmes. Very high praise indeed. But, alas, all good things come to an end. So even though by the mid-1890s the French police had over five million measurements on file, the times they were a-changing. Bertillon's method relied on people being as meticulous and accurate with the measurements as he was, and sadly, criminals were not in the habit of leaving behind their measurements at the scene of the crime. Scottish physician Henry Fold had been studying the marks left by fingerprints and suggested that these marks did not change through a person's life. People started taking notice, including British anthropologist Sir Francis Galton, who published books and articles about the subject. William James Herschel, chief magistrate of the Huli district in Jungapur, India, also asked locals to stamp their business contracts and legal documents with their fingerprints, not in order to catch criminals, but just for administrative purposes, because he realised that these were unique to each individual. Bertillonage, however, was firmly established, and so when the young Argentinian upstart suggested this newfangled method, he was shot down. Stick with Bertillonage, he was told. None of this new fingerprint nonsense. A grisly murder and a bloody fingerprint left at the scene was enough to convince the Argentines, and they became the first country to use fingerprints rather than anthropometry to identify criminals. 
In the UK, identical twins Albert Ebenezer Fox and Ebenezer Albert Fox were also able to outfox the system, providing alibis for each other or pretending to be the other one. Identical in every way, only their fingerprints could set them apart, and Bertinage was not in any way useful to identify them. In the USA, the unlikely story of Will West would cause the Americans to favour fingerprinting. In 1903, a prisoner, Will West, was brought to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas. The clerk recognised him, but Mr West protested that he had never been there before. His file was found. A prisoner with his name, his exact measurements, and who looked just like him, was currently serving time. Although Bertillon used fingerprinting, he could not bear to part with the system that had brought him fame and that he had pioneered, saying my measurements are surer than any fingerprint. So by 1910, France was the only country in Europe not using fingerprinting as its main identification system. On August the 21st, 1911, here where I'm standing in the Cour Carré of the Louvre Museum, the discovery was made of the theft of the Mona Lisa. It seems that the thief had hidden himself away overnight and stolen the painting simply by walking out with it under his coat while disguised as a maintenance worker. Now most people on visiting the Louvre have the same response to the Mona Lisa. She's so much smaller than I thought she'd be. And at 30 by 21 inches, not much bigger than an A2 piece of paper, she is indeed not that big. But this was just as well for the thief because Leonardo had painted his masterpiece onto wood, not canvas, and so it would have been impossible for him to roll it up and steal it had it been much bigger. Upon the discovery, Paris and the popular press went wild. The museum was humiliated to have lost such a valuable piece, and people came in droves to stare at the space where she had once enigmatically smiled. In fact, the theft did a lot to make her, already famous amongst art lovers, one of the most famous pieces in the museum and known to all Parisians. There was much speculation as to who and why she'd been taken. Was it for ransom? Was it for a rich private buyer? And many a scam artist tried to claim that they had her and were willing to sell her for the right price. All of this was to no avail. Suspicious types such as the young Pablo Picasso and Apollinaire were arrested and questioned, but it seemed impossible to find a lead. Thankfully, the thief, Vincenzo Perugia, contacted an art dealer in Italy. Otherwise, she may never have been found. Perugia would later claim that while working at the Louvre, he had fallen in love with the painting, and he was outraged that so many beautiful works of Italian art had been stolen and put on display at the Louvre. The Mona Lisa, although indeed painted by Leonardo da Vinci, was in fact not stolen, as da Vinci lived in France at the end of his life, and after his death, his painting was given to Francois I, the king at the time. Now, whether Perugia was motivated by patriotic zeal to see these works restored to their rightful place, as he insisted, and not by the thought of money, is debatable. Nonetheless, he became very famous in Italy, and rather more infamous in France, especially when it was discovered that he did indeed have a criminal record, and that they had his fingerprints on file, and had they been organised in a way to catalogue criminals using fingerprints and not Bertionnage, they may have discovered the Mona Lisa a good deal quicker with a lot less fuss. This was the last nail in the coffin for Bertionnage.
Bertillon died in 1914. You can see his grave in Pellechaise where he was buried, minus his brain which was donated to science, and you can see his rather medical looking tools and huge camera at the police museum. As for his system, well the mugshot lives on, and arguably so does his measuring of people. In their book, Crimes of Paris, Dorothy and Thomas Hubler astutely point out that biometrics and facial recognition technology are essentially a more sophisticated version of Bertinage, and potentially even more useful than fingerprints. Once again, thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. As ever, I'm open to questions and comments and do check out my website at panampodcast.com for more information, pictures and links. And be sure not to miss any future episodes by subscribing on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Panam is written and produced by myself with music from the owl. Find links to her work in the show notes. That's all for now. Take care. Bye-bye.